This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, an update on the detention and trial of young Palestinian Ahed Tamimi. Doing the math on Canadian climate action, it doesn't add up. And confronting oil pipelines as activists know how through nonviolent direct action. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone seeks happiness. Yet, the world is clearly not always a happy place. Is it possible for some countries to be happier than others? Apparently, yes. At least since April 2012, when the first World Happiness Report came out. Every year since then, the UN Sustainability Development Solutions Network has scored 156 countries based on income, life expectancy, social support, freedom, trust, generosity, and the happiness accruing. For the first time this year, the happiness of immigrants in 117 of these countries was measured. Not surprisingly, immigrants in countries where the general population is happy also report high levels of happiness. Predictably, Scandinavian countries appear to be the happiest. Norway came first last year. This year, the honor goes to Finland. Canada is in the top 10 at 7. War-torn countries like Burundi and Central African Republic are the least happy. Ironically, the only country in the world to make the pursuit of happiness a constitutional right, the United States, has never been in the top 10, and this year barely makes the top 20 down five places from 2016, one spot lower than it was in 2017. According to luminary economist Jeffrey Sachs, three specific health crises turn smiles into frowns in America. Obesity, substance abuse, and depression. The dearth of social supports doesn't ease American unhappiness. One thing is clear from the happiness index, National happiness can be boosted. The tiny West African nation of Togo managed to leap up 18 places from rock bottom last year. That's something to smile about. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Understand me and don't get me wrong. I cared before you, baby. I'll care when you're gone. Right now I'm happy. Oh, you know I'm happy. I am happy with you. Canadian folk icon Willie P. Bennett. Happy on the Moon from his 1998 release Heartstrings, a fabulous recording, one of my favorites, featuring some of Willie P's finest songs, sung and performed by Willie and accompanied by a host of great Canadian musicians, one of them accompanied Willie here on acoustic arch-top guitar, Amos Garrett. 
Fighting climate change is a numbers game in units of degrees and millions and billions of tons. As the atmospheric concentration of earth-warming CO2 rises above 400 parts per million, almost twice what it was 200 years ago, the nations of the world struggle to roll back their emissions by the gigaton. Canada has vowed to cut emissions by 30% relative to its emissions in 2005. It's a paltry target, really. Still, Canada's emissions rise relentlessly, notably in oil-rich Alberta, where bitumen-rich tar sands generate billions and billions of dollars for huge corporations and for the province. To placate Alberta, the Canadian government is saying that expanding fossil fuel production is perfectly consistent with Canada's larger goal of reducing emissions from burning that fuel. Others say the numbers don't add up. Keith Stewart is a senior energy strategist with Greenpeace Canada. Keith Stewart, I'm looking at a report that's just been released by the Parkland Institute uh, regarding uh, the big five uh, oil and gas producers, uh, tar sands producers, and, uh, and what role they, they must play in helping Canada achieve its, its greenhouse gas emission targets established in Paris. And it says here, uh, staying within a two-degree carbon budget will necessitate a reduction in total greenhouse gas emissions, which will require a steady scaling down of oil and gas production and combustion in the next three decades, uh, all five oil sands majors forecast an increase in their total emissions in the future. Um, it, it seems that there's, there's this kind of conundrum. There's no way to achieve Paris targets without reducing oil and gas emissions from the tar sands. And yet, Justin Trudeau says the two actually go hand in hand, uh, achieving reduction targets while at the same time building pipelines and expanding production. Are these folks, I mean, they're not schizophrenic. They understand what has to be done, but there seems to be a, uh, a refusal to face up to the facts. What do you think? Well, we face a real dilemma about the way we usually think about politics. Um, I remember I once got called into a, a liberal cabinet minister's office, not from the current government, um, and basically chewed out and because I was being too critical and not helpful. And they were saying, you know, uh, the minister actually said, well, look, industry seems as upset about this as you are. So to me, that's the definition of good policy. And I think for a lot of, you know, sort of a Canadian instincts are to come down the middle and very much, you know, the, the Liberal Party in all of its various manifestations outside of BC um, tends to sort of think like, okay, you know, if we're, if we're about half, we're halfway in between where the two poles are, then we must be in the right place. And this is where actually on carbon climate policy, carbon math actually matters because it's not enough to sort of do some stuff, you actually have to do enough. And this is where things like carbon budgets come into play because they can actually tell us what is enough. And the, I think the thing that really hasn't sunk in for our political leaders or for our industry leaders is that to achieve that Paris target of keeping warming well below two degrees Celsius, it's not just, you know, just two degrees, it's well below two degrees. Um, if you do the math and you look at the reserves and how much production of coal, oil, and gas there are right now, basically we have to stop building new stuff. You know, we're going to, like, 
we're not going to go off of fossil fuels tomorrow, but we have to stop building new mega projects, invest that instead into renewable energy, energy efficiency. Um, and that's terrifying if you're an oil and gas producer or a coal company. I mean, and so there's the begin the glimmerings of, oh, we actually have to leave the carbon in the ground, the oil, the gas, the coal in the ground. Um, we can't take out all the stuff that we know how to take out that sort of are in corporate reserves right now listed as their assets, which is what's companies valuable. Um, we're actually going to have to leave a bunch of that in the reserve. So what we're seeing now is between countries and also these companies is, okay, sure, someone has to leave some oil in the ground, but it doesn't have to be me. Um, so every company, every country says, well, if everyone else left everything in the ground, surely there would be enough for me to get my stuff to market. And this is where we are right now. You've got Canada, you know, I, there's people in the Liberal government, you know, people I know, people I used to work with the environmental movement, who know this stuff. They know that you can't actually continue to expand fossil fuels and achieve sort of the, the, the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, but they're just afraid to, to say it, or I think sometimes even to think it. And for the companies, I mean, they also look at this, and you have a range of opinions. So you know, the one end, you sort of have Exxon, which says pretty clearly that, okay, sure, if you met the Paris Agreement targets, then a bunch of stuff would have to be left in the ground, but we don't really believe politicians are going to do that, so there's no risk. Um, and then you have some of the sort of, you know, what are usually seen as kind of like more enlightened ones like Shell, which are basically saying, yeah, a lot of the oil is going to have to stay in the ground, so we're going to go to natural gas. And we're going to up our natural gas, even though that creates whole new problems of its own. Um, but this is, I think, where we're at, where people agree in kind of, there's almost agreement aggregate what needs to happen and everyone just kind of says, well, but surely that doesn't mean me. And this is, you know, not that uncommon for human beings. We kind of like recognize there's sort of this big thing that has to be done and then we look for a way to get someone else to do it. And the, the reality is we've all got to do our part. And that means an orderly phase out of fossil fuels over the coming decades where we try and protect the communities that produce the fossil fuels right now, shift our communities to sort of operate using renewable energy instead, using it much more efficiently, you know, we, we have the technology to do this. You know, we have the resources to do it. Right now, it's so sort of those entrenched interests who are kind of like saying, yeah, but my, my oil, my coal, my gas, I get to take that. I get to sell that. Can you go through the climate math uh, for us, Keith? What are the targets, emission reduction targets that Canada has committed to in Paris? And what are we on track to actually... Um, come in at in this regard? And what do we have to do in order to bring ourselves into that, onto that uh, track that's going to achieve the reductions that Canada has committed to achieve? So in Paris, we actually agreed to two different types of targets. On the one hand, Canada and the rest of the world, um, and it was everyone, agreed to keeping warming well below two degrees Celsius. And then every country said, okay, this is how much we're willing to do. So in Canada's case, the, the Trudeau government actually kept the Harper government's previous commitment of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. All of the countries put forward these targets, how much they were willing to do. Those targets in total actually add up to about 3.5 degrees of warming. So every country also agreed, okay, we acknowledge that what we've promised to do so far isn't enough, and we're going to have to find, figure out a way to do more, and it's called the ratcheting down. Um, or ratcheting up the level of ambition. And Canada is supposed to start doing that this year. But right now our target is 30% below 2005 levels. We are not on target to, to meet that. 
Um, the federal government just filed a report with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change where we have to report back to the UN, you know, here's how we're doing towards meeting what we promised to do in Paris. Every country has to do it. And the Canadian report that went in, um, it actually went in in December, but it only kind of became public recently. Um, it said, okay, there's a gap between what we promised to do and um, uh, what we, our current policies would achieve of 66 megatons of emissions reduction. 66 megatons is, you know, more than all the Atlantic provinces put together. Um, it's a lot. It's, you know, it's total Canadian emissions around 700 megatons, so it's getting close to about 10% of total emissions right now. We're, we're, so we're a long way from uh, achieving that target. And the other interesting thing was, in the previous report we'd done, we said we were only 44 megatons away. So what happened in the interim is they sort of redid some of the calculations, but they also said, oh, look, oil and gas is planning to expand more than we thought. And so that's a big chunk of that, the, the, the increase. Um, and particularly the, from the tar sands. Uh, that is, oil and gas in Canada is upstream oil and gas producing the stuff, just getting it out of the ground, is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. It's the fastest rising source. And the really sort of, the thing that's really sort of increasing emissions within that sector is the, the tar sands. So that's our big problem. That's what Canada has to really wrap its head around. And that's the thing that you know, the federal government is keen to sort of reduce emissions everywhere but oil and gas. Um, and that's because they really don't want to cross those, that powerful political interest. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. We sort of have this big gap. Um, even within that, you know, the sort of the emissions that Canada is projecting, there's a bunch of them where the plan is to buy credits from California through the Western Climate Initiative that Ontario and Quebec are part of. No guarantee that's going to happen, given all the crazy things happening south of the border. Um, so we basically, we, we have to do a lot more. And if you look at, you know, emissions are sort of projected to be dropping pretty much everywhere, except in the oil and gas sector. And that's our big challenge. You know, it's about 26% of overall emissions now. If you don't deal with that chunk, or if that chunk doesn't do its fair share, then there's no way we're going to hit that target, which we've already agreed isn't enough to meet our, our real Paris goal, um, the, the real goal of keeping a climate safe future. And this is the challenging thing because liberals, they want to kind of go halfway to, you know, you got the environmentalists, some provinces pushing in one direction, you've got the oil industry, some provinces pushing in another direction. You know, the, the federal liberals would love to be able to come down the middle, but the math the numbers simply don't add up. And what what is your response, Keith, to Prime Minister Trudeau's argument and Rachel Notley's argument that Alberta has agreed to cap emissions from the oil sands, from the tar sands? We're gonna we've put a cap on emissions. Um, so I will say the Notley government has implemented a bunch of ambitious climate programs. They're phasing out coal, sort of following what Ontario did. Um, they're doing some really interesting things on renewable energy. Uh, but this, this supposed cap on emissions was 40% higher than what emissions actually were. And it was actually higher than they were projected to go. Um, so it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, 
I'm going to go on a diet where I'm only going to gain 20 pounds rather than, you know, maybe more than that. Um, this, this is, you know, the, the cap is interesting. It makes for great PR, but no one really thought they were going to go over that cap and certainly not after prices crashed. Um, the pipeline campaigns are actually going to restrict them to lower than the cap anyways if we can block new pipelines. Uh, so this is where it's like, yeah, it's a cap that's a lot higher than right now. Um, and even if we, if we go to that cap, that's the main reason why we're not meeting our Paris targets. And the argument is that the national climate change plan is uh, inextricably linked to Alberta's ability to expand oil sands production, that the two have to go hand in hand that building pipelines, I should say, uh, are essential to helping Canada achieve its reduction plans. And that if, uh, if the Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan pipeline were to be nixed, um, Canada's climate change action plan would, would, would crumble, would fall apart, that the two are uh, associated with each other. What's, what's your response to that? You know, Trudeau says, Trudeau says you can't pick one or the other. We've got to have both. We've got to achieve uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions while at the same time building pipelines. You know, I have sympathy for the position that the sort of the Notley government and to a lesser extent the, the Trudeau government have put themselves in here because they've sort of, they've made this link. Um, I mean, there's no constitutional, technical, or legal reason that is true. I mean, it's not... It's not actually required as any kind of like legal thing, or um, but they've sort of said that this is politically what's required, and what is politically necessary can be changed by things like social movements. I would also, however, note that uh, pipelines only became a fundamental part of this plan, and you know, absolutely unquestionably in the national interest, once there was no longer proposed pipeline going through Quebec. The, the federal liberals only became absolutely committed to their principles on pipelines once it would no longer cost some seats in Quebec. Um, so I think, you know, that that's an indication of just how malleable this definition of the national interest is um, and how politicized. And, you know, basically the, the federal liberals are calculating they can lose some seats in B.C. over Kinder Morgan and hopefully it won't, you know, people in Quebec won't care that much um, and they'll pick up the seats there. It's sort of like the, the political calculus behind this. And if we aren't willing to do hard things, then they are correct. The problem is there is no way to solve climate change without doing difficult things, such as saying no to the oil and gas industry. Saying, you know, we're not shutting you down tomorrow, but you don't get to expand. And what would that mean exactly if, if they were not to expand? Um, how would they continue to, to function? What would be your most effective judicious approach to uh, shutting down the industry in an orderly fashion? So, I mean, we've been saying for years that we need to stop the expansion. We need to deal with the existing harms, things like those massive tailings ponds, which are, you know, hundreds of square kilometers of basically toxic lakes in Alberta. Um, we need to clean those up. We need to clean up the existing operations. And we need to plan for that orderly phase-out, the transition off of fossil fuels. And again, that's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not like everyone's going to be out of work tomorrow. 
or we're going to stop using oil tomorrow. But we need to actually start moving in that direction. So it's things like bringing in aggressive programs for expanding public transit, for expanding people's ability to get around by walking and cycling, moving to electric vehicles powered by uh, renewable energy and by electric vehicles. I'm thinking, you know, not just, you know, the Tesla cars, but uh, street cars, buses, long distance transport of freight, etc. Um, so there's, and again, we have the, the technical possibility like that we have the know-how to do all of these things. Um, and it's going to take a long time. It's going to take decades. It's kind of like the work of this generation. Uh, but that's what we actually have to buckle down to getting on with the job rather than thinking we can continue to expand fossil fuels and still have a safe climate for our kids. And those two things can't go together. The math, again, simply doesn't add up. Keith Stewart is Senior Energy Strategist with Greenpeace Canada. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Unlock that door, the skies above are leaking On your pen, poppers in the rain Get nowhere, get nowhere, get nowhere And if I die, you will regret Papa has no place to go You got a nice warm room and so Share with Papa, don't forget Papa's in the rain, get nowhere
Getting All Wet, Leroy Carr and Scrapper Blackwell, one of the great blues duos, popular recording artists on the Vocalion label between 1928 and 1935. A few weeks back, the Green Blues Show reported on the case of 17-year-old Palestinian girl named Ahed Tamimi. Ahed was arrested by Israeli soldiers on the night of December 19th following a videoed incident that went viral in which she kicks and slaps one of two Israeli soldiers who'd entered her family's property and was refusing to leave. Ahed and her family, the village of Nabi Saleh in the northern Israeli-occupied West Bank, are renowned for their weekly popular protests. Israeli soldiers and police routinely greet these protests with gas grenades, high-velocity tear gas canisters, noxious, sewage-smelling fluid called skunk, rubber bullets, and live rounds. Two members of Ahed's family have been killed in the course of protests. Days before the slapping incidents, Ahed's 15-year-old cousin had received a rubber bullet in his face. Ahed Tamimi now faces a host of charges, including assaulting a soldier and interfering with military operations and will be tried in military court. Israel is apparently the only country in the world to try minors in military courts. Conviction rates are near 100%. Ahed Tamimi is highly likely to be jailed for years. Fadi Karan is a Palestinian youth activist in Ramallah and a member of Ahed's support team. I reached Fadi Karan in Ramallah Apologies for the audio quality. You'll have to listen closely. Fadi, tell me what happened at the at the hearing yesterday. Was it? Yes, at the at the hearing yesterday, the uh, judge heard from both the defense, from Ahed's lawyer, and also from the Israeli military prosecutor, and it was focused on whether or not the hearing for Ahed would be open or whether it would be closed to the public and the press. And it was the judge said that he would give an official response on Wednesday evening. Now it's very clear that both the Israeli military judge and the Israeli military prosecutor have reached a conclusion that having the public eye and the spotlight on the case of Ahad Tamimi and on the detention of children more broadly uh, is harmful because it shows, number one, that this is a kangaroo court, and secondly, it puts the spotlight uh, more directly on the illegal processes that go on in this court itself, illegal both on the international law and also uh, based on different standards of fair trial that exist. Um, and so they're trying to remove this spotlight and ensure that no diplomats, no media, um, no supporters of Ahed outside of the hearing. The other piece of this is, it's apart from them not wanting to show, um, you know, what a farce this legal process is, they also don't want um, Ahed to know that she has so much global support um, from different nations, from different people, from different groups all around the world because that gives her strength, and that strength is harmful because the whole prison experience, particularly for children, seeks to break them psychologically 
and um, sometimes even physically. And so they don't want I had to see that support. Um, of course, the, the judge's argument, the military judge's argument, is that um, he wants to maintain, because, you know, I had as a child, he wants to maintain her privacy, quote, end quote. That's, that's the legal reasoning being provided for this. But um, number one, if I had and I had the legal team want people to be present, then it's their right um, and it's their prerogative to decide whether this court hearing is private or public, whether it's closed or open. And um, secondly, um, there have been over 12,000 Palestinian children that have gone through these hearings. Um, and the, the military itself, the Israeli military, has filmed um, Ahed's arrest. They have um, allowed and put out key, um, not just against Ahed, but the pictures and um, I would say um, kind of attacks on the Tamimi family, on children within the Tamimi family previously. Um, so if they cared about Ahed's privacy as a military institution, um, number one, they wouldn't um, have arrested her. Number two, they wouldn't have to defame her name um, across the media and to attack her family and other people. Um, and so, you know, this, this argument that they care, quote-unquote, about Ahed's privacy um, is clearly an empty argument, a false argument. Um, we can send a readout um, to you of what happened in that court hearing, a uh, translated readout. Um, for you all to hear. Fadi, where is Ahed right now? And what is her situation at this at this instant? Um, Ahed is currently um, at the Hasharon prison. Um, and she is being held, the Hasharon prison is a military prison mainly. Um, it's one of two prisons where uh, female Palestinian political prisoners are held um, currently, we believe there are about, um, the last I heard, there were about um, 13 other women being held in the same section she's being held in. She's in her mother, Nariman Tamimi, is in a separate prison cell, um, but it's is in the same prison, uh, but they're not together. Uh, they, each other, they're given, uh, you know, 30-minute uh, periods daily to walk in an open space. Uh, it's basically like a square space that people can just walk around in um, and they get to see each other during that period. And I had been using her time in herself to mainly study because, uh, you know, she's a high school student and she wants to make sure that she doesn't lose a year uh, from her education. The prison that she's held in um, is cold in the winter, extremely hot in the summer. It's an uncomfortable place. Um, inside the prison uh, section that she's held in, um, there are some uh, young women and some older women who have, you know, could be sick uh, or could be facing kind of difficult psychological issues, and they're not separated. And as people listening may know, under international law, it's illegal for an occupying military to transfer those that it arrests to another territory. 
and to another country that violates the Geneva Convention. But in this case, Ahed and her mother are being held. The Hasharon prison is uh, within the Israeli borders. This also means that it's very difficult for Ahed's family to visit her. Uh, it's almost impossible, actually, for them to see her, specifically her dad and brothers. Um, and you know, that just increases the level of loneliness. Um, but, you know, Ahed remained strong and remained steadfast um, and remained focused on ensuring that she, you know, comes out stronger from this experience. And every time we've spoken to her, although many times she was kept out in the cold, um, she had to spend a few nights alone um, in kind of confinement with no one with her. She faced a difficult and insulting interrogation um, in which she was threatened and her cousins um, and brothers were threatened, including, including her 11-year-old cousin, Jenna. They threatened that they would arrest her if I had family didn't, um, you know, say the things that the interrogator wanted her to say and admit uh, to crimes that she didn't commit. But I had remained silent throughout that process. And our hope is that with increasing public advocacy and with increasing mobilization on the ground for Ahed's case and for the case of Palestinian children, we will manage to free her. Has she been physically mistreated? Um, physically mistreated in terms of when she was arrested. Uh, we have uh, kind of, you know, when she was arrested, uh, she, she was told when she was in prison. And during her last hearing, uh, the last open hearing, not the hearing that happened yesterday, the uh, Israeli soldier, a prison guard that brought her into the room, tightened the handcuffs extremely on her hand and then kept pulling the, her hand down, pulling the handcuffs down, um, which, is, you know, which caused her extreme pain. And once she's transported from prison cell to prison cell, um, they are physically abusive. Sometimes um, you would see you know, pushing, uh, punching in the interrogation sessions and we have reason to believe that also the interrogators um, used language um, and physical touch uh, in a way that was inappropriate and uncomfortable. And so, yes, you know, she, she is mistreated in, in different ways. Our big problem, again, is that it's very difficult for us to communicate with her. Even when the lawyers speak with her, they often don't have a big enough window of time um, and kind of face different forms of intimidation. And so, you know, we'll be able to have a clearer picture of exactly what type of abuse and physical abuse and mistreatment she faced when she is hopefully released and she can give us the details of what she's been through. Fadi Karan, thank you very much. Thank you. Fadi Karan is a Palestinian youth activist in Ramallah, Update on Ahed Tamimi's hearing, an Israeli military judge ruled on March 19th that Ahed's trial will take place behind closed doors for Ahed's own protection. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. My mother and daddy live on a high hill Way on that Mississippi road My mother and daddy 
Lenoir, Mississippi Road. In the wake of the Canadian government's decision to fit expanded tar sand and pipeline construction into its greenhouse gas emission reduction strategy, most specifically to approve the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline for delivery of dirty bitumen to Pacific markets, Canadian activists are getting up in arms. Protests of varying militancy have been and are taking place. Here's the voice of First Nations activist Clayton Thomas Mueller, recorded back in 2016 at the World Social Forum in Montreal. Thomas Mueller is out in Burnaby now, protesting Kinder Morgan. I work for 350.org, and you know, uh, similar to my brother here, I, I'm really, really into civil disobedience. <laughs> you know, because it works. You know, I was one of the first campaigners that started working on the issue of tar sands when it became an issue of concern for NGOs. You know, indigenous peoples in northern Alberta and the Athabasca region have been campaigning on tar sands for three or four decades. And it was only about, you know, 10 years ago that the nonprofit industrial complex decided to get involved, and I was one of those people that got involved. And at the time, it was a small group 
really one family from Fort Chippewan that said, we got to do something about the tar sands. And we started to organize, and we started to organize, and we started, you know, we'd organize, 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 mobilize, organize, 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 mobilize, organize, mobilize, organize. <laughs> and we built up one of the most visible environmental, indigenous rights, intersectional campaigns ever in the history of campaigns. And we've had a lot of victories in the campaign, for sure. A lot, we've won a lot of battles. I think the most notable battle that we won was convincing and pushing the highest office in the United States government, the most powerful military superpower on the planet, to say no to big oil for the first time in the name of climate change. Yeah. And we stopped the northern segment of the Keystone XL pipeline. But we haven't stopped there. You know, we haven't stopped there. We still have half a dozen other pipeline proposals that sit on the table. We have the oil by rail fiasco still, you know, continuing. We have you know, proposals like the tech mine in the tar sands. This is a mine that if it's approved, will be as big as all of the other surface mining operations combined, okay? It'll have its own dedicated tailings ponds. There's already 13 tailings or 12 tailings ponds in the tar sands that are so big, you can see these things from outer space. If one of these tailings ponds were to burst into the Athabasca River, it would foul a third Okay, a third of Canada's freshwater resources. And remember, Canada has what, two thirds of the world's freshwater resources here? And so this is psychotic. This is this, is, this psychotic Western scientific industrial experiment called capitalism. We've got to end it. Clayton Thomas Mueller works with 350.org. Here's another activist out in BC who's really laying it on the line David Mivisayer decided back in the fall to block Kinder Morgan construction and now faces an injunction to cease and desist. So for maybe five years now, I've been active in different ways trying to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion, along with thousands of other people. And for years, I signed petitions, I went to rallies, I spoke to my MP, I wrote letters, uh, I was hopeful when the new liberal government took over that they would stop it. I was part of a rally of more than 5,000 people, actually a march through Vancouver. It was so powerful. It was amazing. And then the liberal government approved it. And I saw large, well-funded NGOs organizing events over and over and over again that were ineffectual. And um, last October, um, I think it was 350.org and the local Tsleil-Waututh uh, people organized a thing where people, including myself, took canoes and kayaks and went out on the water right at the Westridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby, which is right across the water from where the Tsleil-Waututh community is located. And clearly they're traditional unceded territory and went out on the water and waved banners and beat drums and chanted and sang and, and, and felt groovy and took lots of cool pictures and went up on the website and Kinder Morgan you know, didn't even like burp, you know, they, they don't care. They totally don't care. And I saw that in advance, of course, symbolic, performative, 
protest events can be completely ignored by people who have billions of dollars at stake or who just won a national election and don't really need to listen to us. So I thought, wait a minute, to stop Kinder Morgan, frankly, just me and one other guy could go over there in my canoe and get in the way. Just get in the way. If I'm in the way, they will stop. And then if somebody else comes and somebody else comes and somebody else comes, if I get in the way and they stop, they're going to call the police. Of course, the police will come and take me away. What if somebody else in a canoe comes right behind me? So that was my thinking. And then um, the weather turned bad. We couldn't do it in canoes, and that's not the easiest way to do it anyway. So uh, I called someone else, and then she said, okay, let's do it. You know, I thought, do it on land. And she's like, I'm in. Let's do it. You know, so November 30th, about a dozen of us went to the one single road that leads into the Westridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby and and blocked the contractors and the and the trucks and the deliveries and the equipment just blocked them and when we that was November 30th it happened on that very day the CEO of um, Kinder Morgan Canada named Ian Anderson um, schlepped uh, Rachel Notley out here to give a speech in the Chamber of Commerce about how uh, he said that construction delays cost his investors $90 million a month plus millions more, in, oh, $90 million a month in uh, lost revenues. Lost revenues, right? Their own projections. They, they made up a story for themselves that they would have revenues and now they're losing them. Ha <laughs> ha. Anyway, he said there, it's costing his investors $90 million a month in lost revenues and about $30 million a month in direct costs, such as salaries and equipment rentals and things like that. The very same day that we just happened to decide to cause some construction delays. So it was like, okay, dude, you know, you just told me exactly what we need to do. I want to say Kinder Morgan was hurting so bad from what we were doing. They filed court documents and sued us for projected losses of over a billion dollars a year. They claim $1.07 billion a year of projected losses. And the affidavits they filed said that we were costing them, I could give you the exact figures, they said they were costing them something like forty or $50,000 an hour, something like two or $3 million a week. And if this continues, they will suffer irreparable damages. When did they file this affidavit? Late last Thursday afternoon. This was such an urgent emergency. They had to have a judge rule on it on Friday morning. Of course, they filed it late Thursday afternoon. They filed it in what's called ex parte, which means the defendants don't need to be there or respond. The court, it's so urgent that the courts must respond immediately to defend the plaintiff and act. So on Friday morning, a judge issued an injunction, and as I came up, not, I don't want, the judge issued an injunction. Myself and my friends uh, uh, reflected on this and decided not to defy that injunction. It was a temporary injunction. There was, they adjourned until um, Wednesday when the judge would resume and rule on whether to issue a continuing injunction or not. 
And we thought in that interim, it would be best not to provoke further um, oppression from these powerful tyrants. So we have suspended what we were doing. What were you enjoined not to do? We were enjoined not, I can say simply, not to interfere with their construction work. We were enjoined from approaching within 50 meters of any of their properties anywhere or places that they lease. We were enjoined from blocking roads. Those are the things. So you, you have certain, I mean, you know, there's this whole community of individuals and organizations out there you know, um, trying to uh, trying to stop pipelines, to put it kind of baldly. There are individuals such as yourself. There are NGOs, large and small. There are grassroots organizations and groups. What's your take on how the, the you know, the big NGOs were kind of, in a sense, the most upfront and vocal and, you know, prominent in media? How are they, how are they, yeah, tell me. Well, I think the evidence is that they haven't stopped the pipeline. And what I see is they're not even getting in the way. I don't think they're even slowing it down. And what prompted me to start uh, people directly, physically intervening and interrupting the construction work was that I went to so many rallies that thousands of people would come out the NGOs that we support with our donations would spend tens of thousands of dollars and have no impact. And I was at a thing in October where people could have been mobilized to actually stop the construction, but nobody did that. So I felt like got to do it, just got to do it. So there's been about 50 people who since November 30th, over and over and over again, throughout December, January, and February, virtually every day, have gone to the Kinder Morgan destruction site and physically with our bodies blocked uh, trucks and workers. And we've done that over and over again. And the NGOs know we're doing it. I tell them, I ask them, please, you know, mobilize your people. And they don't. So you think, David, David Mivasir, you believe that direct action, nonviolent direct action is, and that's a phrase, um, is the best approach to thwarting Kinder Morgan's project and the pipelines, more generally speaking, and oil, oil sands exploitation, more generally speaking. Kinder Morgan themselves said that. Kinder Morgan took us to court and sued us because we were getting in the way and interfering. Direct action is not a performative, staged, symbolic expression of your protest. That is not direct action. Coordinating with the police and bringing 30 people to sit in front of a gate on a day when the company's not doing any work, that's not direct action. That's staging a media event. Direct action is you bring those people three weeks ago when Kinder Morgan had to cut down trees or else would not be able to start boring a tunnel through Burnaby Mountain for another five months. And if they were delayed five months, according to their own court documents, it would cost them half a billion dollars. And you don't bring people to do that. You just sit on the side and you wait until after that's done. 
And then the day before you send out a fundraising letter asking people to send you more money so you can save those trees that have already been cut down, that, that is not direct action. That's playing people. That's a game. And I, I don't think anybody should go along with that. I think that needs to be called out, and that's what I'm doing. David Mivisair lives out in Vancouver. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Bye for now. (laughs) 